All right, we are uh, going to the book of Amos this morning, chapter 9. We're wrapping up Amos this morning, and we'll be using the Bible a lot this morning, so if you don't have one in front of you or on your phone, we have some back here on our resource table. I'd really encourage you to grab one because we're going to be looking at a few different things this morning. Amos chapter 9. If you don't know, we're in a series right now called The Hidden Prophets, and we're working our way through a a group of books in the Old Testament that are known as the Minor Prophets. Um, And I found that, at least in the American church, these are books of the Bible that have largely been overlooked. More than likely, you've never explored them or read them, or only maybe a couple of them are you familiar with. Uh, Amos is one of those, and we've been here for the last few weeks, and excited to wrap this up today. This is, this is one of my favorite texts in the entire book, and uh, starting next week, we will be jumping into the book of Hosea. So, Amos 9, we're beginning in verse 11 this morning. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. And this is the word of the Lord. All right, so as we've said over the last few weeks, um, man, the book of Amos is a little bit of a downer, right? Because Amos has been talking continually, in fact, repetitively, about the sin of Israel, all of the things that they've done wrong, the ways that they've crushed and oppressed the poor, uh, the ways that they have gone after all of these other false gods. Amos has laid it all on the table in declaring God's word to them. And we've gotten a little bit of a taste of how the people have responded, which was to say, Amos, get out of here. Like, we don't want to listen to what you have to say. We don't care about your words. You're, you're upsetting everybody. Hit the road. So the, so the people weren't hearing his words and repenting. They weren't turning back to God. And what we've seen over and over again is that destruction and exile was going to be coming for Israel as a result. Hey, what I want to do this morning is I want to repeat something that I've said almost every week throughout this study because it is a critical detail, and it's especially going to be critical critical today as we consider this text. At this time, as you guys know, uh, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is called Israel, or often you'll see it called Samaria. And then the southern kingdom is called Judah. Now we've talked about that ad nauseum, But again, it's super important to what's going on here today. In the north, we have something like 10 tribes. If you remember when the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, were led into the promised land of Canaan by Moses and Joshua, they got into the promised land, and then each tribe ultimately got an allotment of land. And so you have some that are kind of in the northern region geographically. You have some that are in the southern region geographically. The southern region of Judah is also where Jerusalem is. But 
but let me refresh us just a little bit on how this division came to be. During the time of Solomon, King Solomon, who was David's son, one of his superintendents was a man named Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam had his own aspirations of becoming king, and he conspired against Solomon, but the conspiracy was ultimately found out, and Jeroboam was forced to flee to Egypt. When Solomon died, however, his son Rehoboam, not confusing at all, his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne of Israel, and what happened was it opened the door for Jeroboam to return from exile in Egypt. When Rehoboam came to the throne, his father Solomon had done some incredible things in the land. He had built this glorious, magnificent temple. He had built some other incredible things. Like people were coming from all over the known world at that time to see uh, the wealth and the splendor of Israel. But Solomon had done a lot of that by levying heavy taxes on the people. And so you may remember several weeks ago when we kind of first started this study, we talked about the fact that when Rehoboam became king of Judah, well, what at that time was all of Israel, they were not divided. When he became king, the people came to him and said, your your father Solomon levied heavy taxes against us. He's put this burden on our back. Will you please Lift the burden. Will you please decrease our taxes? And so Rehoboam consults with two groups. He consults with the old men who were his father's contemporaries, and he consults with a group of young men who were sort of his peers. And the old men say, you should listen to the people. Like, if you want them to love you and respect you and follow you, you should do what they ask and reduce their tax burden. But then Rehoboam went and talked to the young men, and they gave him a completely different answer. They said, who do these people think they are, right? You're the king. You make the rules. You tell them what to do. They don't have any power. They can't come to you and demand anything. So how dare they? And so Rehoboam sides with the young men, and he comes to the people and says, not only am I going to continue to levy these taxes against you, I'm actually going to increase your tax burden. So as a result of that, the people revolt, right? And Jeroboam comes back, and he leads a revolt of 10 tribes, to separate from the union of Israel, so to speak, and become the northern kingdom of Israel or Samaria, leaving two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, in the south with Jerusalem, with the seat of Hebrew worship. Uh, Just as kind of a rabbit trail, um, uh, you may notice this. This may sound a little bit familiar to you. We get into the New Testament and we hear a lot about Samaritans. Undoubtedly, you're familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan was shocking because the Jews thought of Samaritans as being uh, morons, evil, half-breeds, like all, they they just were, had like a complete racial bias against Samaritans. But that stems from this time period because originally Samaritans were, in a sense, Jews, Eventually, the Assyrians come in, and this is the result of everything that Amos has been prophesying about. The Assyrians come in and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, and they scatter the people to the wind. They carry some into exile. Many are just brutally murdered. But there are a few who remain in the land, right? It's not everybody who's annihilated. There are still a few people. And then ultimately, other people groups start moving in and start intermarrying with some of the Jews who were still left in the region. And ultimately, over several hundred years leading up to the time of Christ, 
it forms essentially a new people group who come to be known as the Samaritans. And the Jews who still exist at that time, which are largely the descendants of the people of Judah, view the Samaritans as uh, renegades, as people who've abandoned God, as people who can't be trusted because of what has transpired here in the book of Amos, because they had worshipped false gods, and they had abandoned the law of God, and they had done all of these terrible things to the poor. And then even when other people moved into town, they just started intermarrying with whatever other people they wanted to, which was a no-no for the Jews at that point in time. So that's how this division between the Jews and the Samaritans ultimately began. So that's just a fun fact for you next time you're on Jeopardy. So the northern kingdom, here's the point, the northern kingdom was ultimately the rebellion. They were ultimately the ones who sort of left Israel, even though they were still called Israel. It wasn't the tribes of the south that like pulled out of the union, so to speak. It was the north. And when the northern kingdom was established, that essentially began a new monarchy under this guy, Jeroboam. But what was the monarchy in the south? What was the monarchy in Judah? It had been established under David. And when the split occurred, you have a brand new monarchy that begins, but the Davidic monarchy continues undisturbed. And that's incredibly significant. Here's why. Only David had been anointed by God to be king of Israel. And not only that, God had sent his prophet Nathan to make a covenant with David. We see this here in 2 Samuel 7. Prophet Nathan comes to David and he declares this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is what Nathan declares to David. And the New Testament writers take this covenant that God makes with David to establish his throne forever. And what the New Testament writers tell us is that's really about Jesus. It's really about the Messiah. In fact, the New Testament begins, Matthew chapter 1, with a genealogy of Jesus that shows us that Jesus comes from the, not only the line of Abraham, but he comes from the line of David. And you get into the gospel accounts, and what you see come up over and over again, something like 17 times, Jesus is called the son of David. It's a messianic title that is given to him. And so we see this over and over again. And with that in mind, I want to look at today's text, right? With that in mind, I want to look at today's text because our text begins with talking about David. And yet this whole time, we've been talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, not the southern kingdom of Judah where the Davidic monarchy is in place. We've been talking about another people and another place all together. And yet we get here to the very end of the book, a book that's been largely a downer, and suddenly we're ending on like an up note. But it's not about 
Israel or Samaria. It's about Judah. So look with me, verse 11 of our text. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. First, the day in that day, the day that is being referred to here is probably what is sometimes called the day of the Lord. We've already seen that terminology in Amos. We've talked a little bit about it. You may recall back in chapter 5 that the people in the northern kingdom of Israel hoped for the day of the Lord. They thought that this is going to be a day when God's just going to come Even though they had been horribly sinful and had worshipped other gods and had crushed and oppressed the poor, in their mind they thought if God shows up, he's going to bless us. Like he's going to give us everything we want. He's going to do great things for us. What Amos said in chapter 5 was, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Amos says, guys, if God shows up suddenly and looks at your life and looks at the society that is in place here, it is not going to be a good day for you. And ultimately, that's what a lot of the book of Amos is about, is about the fact that God has looked at them. And we saw last week the metaphor of he's dropped a plumb line amongst his people, Israel. He's measured them, and they do not measure up, right? They're they're not doing what he originally designed for them to do. They've abandoned his law altogether. So Amos says, "You, you don't want the day of the Lord. You don't know what you're talking about. He goes on. And we see that phrase um, throughout the book of Amos. We see it throughout the scriptures in general. It's used in slightly different ways throughout the scriptures. And the New Testament is, if the day of the Lord is talked about, it more than likely is talking about the return of Christ, like the day when Jesus will come back. But in the Old Testament, um, it, it often simply has to do with, with God coming near in some kind of powerful way. And so on some level, you could say that there are multiple days of the Lord throughout the Old Testament, and that ultimately as the church, we are looking forward to the great and final day of the Lord that is to come. Verse 10 says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Remember we said that Israel at this time is prosperous. They are wealthy. They are militarily powerful. And and they're living in a time period not unlike America where it's easy to feel like we're kind of invincible. We're the richest nation on earth, right? Who who can touch us? Who, Who can do anything to us? That's kind of the mindset that they have at this point. And yet Amos's prophecy is, no, 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 no. A day is coming when even though you say disaster shall not overtake or meet us, it most certainly will. And and that there would ultimately be horrible things that would come as a result of that. But then we get here to the very end and there is this good that will also come out of it. And the good is that God keeps his covenant promises. So the Old Testament is constructed around a series of covenants that God makes with man. He makes covenants with Adam, with Abraham, with Noah, with David. And these aren't just promises, they're covenants, which means that God is not basing upholding his end of the covenant on whether or not the other party upholds their end of the covenant. In today's world, one of the few corollaries is the marriage covenant. It's an agreement that I keep for better or worse. Me keeping it Ideally, 
is not contingent on the other party keeping it. It's in good times and it's in bad times. It's in sickness and in health. Those things are not outs on the covenant. And if there's one thing that God does, God keeps his word. God is faithful. We see this over and over again. He upholds his covenants. And one of the things that God's saying is, I will be faithful to secure the throne of David forever. That's how this began. In that day, I will raise back up the booth of David that has fallen. Now, as we've said, Israel is going to be destroyed. They're going to be scattered to the wind. And ultimately, the same thing to some extent is going to happen to Judah. With Israel, it's the Assyrian Empire that sweeps in and wipes everything out. But with the people of Judah, a little while later, it's the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible. They come in, and they destroy Jerusalem, and they destroy the walls around the city. Um, But God says, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. I will keep my covenant promises. Um, So notice that there's all this language here about repairing breaches and raising ruins and rebuilding, and I think that's both metaphorical and literal language. As we have said, Jerusalem will ultimately be destroyed. Uh, Solomon's temple will be destroyed. The walls will be destroyed. If you've ever read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, those books are about the people of Judah coming back several decades later from exile and going about the work of rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls around the city. So there would be a literal rebuilding that would have to take place. There would also be a symbolic rebuilding that would happen. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed that temple that Solomon built, as we said. And when the exiles came back, they built another one that came to be known ultimately as the second temple. And it's the second temple that was still standing in Jerusalem during the time of Christ. And I don't know if you remember, but Jesus talked a lot about the temple. And Jesus said things that were really controversial and kind of mysterious about the temple. One of the things that Jesus said um, comes in John chapter 2. I think I have this. John chapter 2. Let's see. Maybe I don't have it up here. But this is John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus is speaking, and here's what he says. Jesus answered them, these are Pharisees, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. They had been in a season of expansion on the temple, like they had increased its size. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body, is what the scripture says. The Hebrew people were so focused on the temple, but what made the temple the temple? It was the presence of God. It wasn't just the building itself, right? It wasn't the gold that had been used or the wood that had been used or the stones that were in it. It was the fact that God's presence ultimately came and dwelt there. And yet Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they're like, what are you talking about, man? This has been standing here for hundreds of years now, but he was talking about himself. The text in verse 12 mentions that the house of David will possess 
the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. So, so don't lose track here. God is saying through Amos, I'm going to raise up and rebuild the booth of David, the house of David, the tent of David. And, and here, verse 12, there's, there's, the house of David is going to come to possess this remnant and all the nations who are called by my name. Now flip over real quick to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. This is an episode in Acts known as the Jerusalem Council. And it is essentially the first like leadership meeting of the newly formed Church of Christ that develops after Jesus' ascension. And Paul and his associate Barnabas have come before the council, and they've been telling them all about the things that they've seen on their missionary journeys, namely the fact that Gentiles, which were non-Jews, were coming to know Christ. So they're coming reporting to these Jews We're seeing all these people who are not Jews believe this and give their life to it and follow it. And then here's what happens. James, who is the brother of Jesus, stands up in the midst of this council and says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, meaning Paul, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Then the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Some of the question is, are we going to let them in, right? Are we going to let them into our club? What are we going to ask of them? What are we going to make them do? Do they have to become Jews to follow Jesus? And he goes to Amos to explain this. He goes, man, God's been telling us that this was going to happen from of old. This is what's going on. So the tent of David will be rebuilt The Jerusalem Council, James here, sees that as happening through Christ. And that when it's rebuilt, it will not just include people who are ethnic Jews, but people from all nations who are called to Christ. So let's read on back in Amos, verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. So Amos ends, I don't know if you catch this here, but Amos ends with a picture of like a restored garden of Eden, like a restored garden of Eden. It's a picture of a land that's so fertile that just as soon as someone picks a crop, the plowman's coming through right behind them to replant. And at the same time time that the grapes are being made into wine, new seed is being sown. If you remember the covenant God made with Adam, In Genesis 3, known as the Adamic Covenant, it came as the result of the sin of the man and the woman. Here's what he says 
Genesis 3, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is part of what God says to Adam following their sin. But it's a covenant about how the earth is going to be broken as a result of sin. This doesn't just mean that there's going to be sinful activity in people, but that literally the earth itself will not bend to the will of man. If you've ever tried to grow a garden in your backyard, you know this is true, right? Like, thing, like we've been trying to just grow some tomatoes and squash this year, and it's just like there's bugs, there's all this rain, like it's, it's a mess, and it seems like it should be so easy. We should be able to just put a seed in the ground and it should be, you know, coming forth and, and being bountiful and, and delicious. And yet so often that isn't what happens. And it's hard work. You have to till the soil. You have to dig it up. You have to get out there in the hot sun. And meanwhile, worthless plants like thorns and thistles have no problem whatsoever, right? I don't know if you've got this Broadmoor vine that like grows all over town, but we've gotten it in our yard. It has no problem whatsoever. It's doing great right now. Right? So, so, like, isn't this true? Like, don't you see this as being real and true in our world? Even when people have the knowledge and the experience to know how to grow things well, drought, famine, all these kinds of things come in and wreak havoc. Bugs, like, yeah. So, we see this at play in our world. But in Amos' vision, he says the land will become so abundant, it's as if it'll be like flowing with sweet wine, like a Moscato, right? Just, just flowing through the land. Like, that's what it's going to be. It, it, it harkens back to that language in the first five books of the Bible where it talks about a land flowing with milk and honey, right? It gives us a sense of that. Have you ever noticed in the story of Scripture how so much of the story is about a loss of place? Adam and Eve are forced to leave Eden and travel into a land that is hard and broken. Abraham was called out of his land and sent to a place that he had never been before to never return to his home. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery and finds himself in Egypt, and that is where he lives out the remainder of his days. Moses, his mother, in fear for his life, puts him in a basket and sends him down the river, and he grows up in the house of Pharaoh, only ultimately to flee after he kills an Egyptian and live most of his life in exile, only to come back, lead the people out of Egypt, and live the rest of his life out in the wilderness in a desert. Like, do you notice these patterns? What about Jesus, right, who stepped down out of heaven and came to dwell among his people? What about Ruth, who goes with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, your people will be my people. I guess I'm living with you for the rest of my life. What about us? Did you notice that text that I asked you to hold on to in 2 Corinthians earlier this morning? Where Paul says... To really be at home is to be with the Lord. And we start talking about place, and we start talking about home, we start talking about what it really means to feel like we are at home. In the beginning, God created us to be with him, right? That's part of the separation and curse that comes from the fall. 
is that we've been separated from him because of our sin. Our longing, our sadness, our depression, our sin tendencies, our suffering, all the negative things that we see in our world today are a result of the fact that we are not with him, right? And that is why God sent his only son to die, so that we might be reconciled to him, not just in the sense that our sins could be forgiven, but so that we can be with him again, so that we can come home. And that's why there's all of this language about family and marriage and dining around the table as adopted children, as beloved children of the Father because of Christ. It's because God is seeking to bring us back home, bring us back to him so that we aren't a people without a place, so that we have a sense of who we are and where we really belong. And that is the already but not yet nature of the life we live now in Christ, is that our future has been secured. We know what is to come. We know it has been sealed by Jesus. But we are still physically in a place that is not ultimately our home. And the pain and the hurt and the longing that we feel in this place comes from that ultimately. And when we try to satisfy that with anything other than Christ, it might do the trick for a season, but it will ultimately leave us wanting again. That's why Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, right? That's why he uses all of this water imagery. Anybody who eats of me will never be hungry again. Anybody who drinks of me will never be thirsty again because he is the only one who can satisfy. So, now the covenant age that we're living in now is not the age of the Davidic covenant or the covenant with Abraham, but we are living in an age known as the age of the new covenant. It's a covenant that has been made by Jesus Christ. It is based on his body and his blood. And Jesus tells us that he is fulfilling the old covenants and establishing this new covenant based on his blood. We talk about this every week when we take communion. And in this new covenant, all those who have faith in Christ are not simply promised eternal life, but you are promised a home forever. And it's a home that will never be taken away from you, right? And so in the context of Scripture, when Amos says that Israel will never again be uprooted from their land, I don't think he's talking about the Middle East, right? He's talking about a new heaven and a new earth that will come about as the result of what Christ has done. And that is something that will never be taken away because finally we will truly be at home with the Lord. I think it's a future place that we maybe see glimpses of now, but one day we will see it in its fullness. As Paul says, we see through a glass dimly, but one day completely. And it truly is a land flowing with milk and honey. It truly is a land flowing with sweet wine. It is not like the Israel of the Old Testament, but it's sort of a new Israel. It's a new Israel where the people are not just ethnic Hebrews. It's an Israel that's made up of all nations. That's what we're seeing here. And what makes them Israel is not their ethnic heritage. It is whom they're bowing down to. It's who their king is. 
It's the new and better David, the true Davidic king, the true heir, the true one who establishes David's throne forever, Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 11 when he talks about the Gentiles being a wild olive shoot who get grafted into the promise. And the promise is sealed and fulfilled through Christ, that through faith in Christ, we might all truly become people of God who dwell with him forever. And that is worth celebrating and giving him thanks and praise. So let us go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you for the truth and the promises of your scripture, the covenants that you have made of old, the fact that, God, those things still have relevance to us today because in them we see them pointing to Christ. We see the future that is to come in Christ. And now we get to live in this new covenant world where we don't have to find our identity and our purpose and our satisfaction simply in the things of this world, but rather we get to recognize with joy that the things of this world are passing away and that we are promised a home that will not pass away, that will last forever and will be unlike anything we can imagine. God, thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin. Thank you for your abundant merciful grace. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen. Stand with us.